0: 1 Corinthians 417 17-21. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, I went ahead and read the first few verses of chapter 5 because I want you to get the flow. The Apostle Paul is right at the brink of addressing incest. And the incest that he's going to address is the incest of of a man who's sleeping with his father's wife. And the Apostle Paul knows this is going on in the church. He knows the church knows it's going on, and he knows the church is proud. And we'll get into that in a couple of weeks, right? Because it's hard for us to imagine how the church could have been proud in the midst of that. But you have to understand, that's where he's headed. And so the text we're studying is what he says right before he begins to discipline them for this terrible sin in their church. So he says, for this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you... Of my ways. Now, the first question is, for this reason. That's how it begins. And the, and the question is, for what reason? Why has he sent Timothy to the church of Corinth? Well, to answer that question, you go back to just above what we read. And there you read, in verse 16, he says, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. So, be imitators of me, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy. Now, last time we studied this, we looked at the intimacy of Scripture. Or, I should say, the intimacy of Paul and Timothy and all the Christians in all the churches. They knew each other. They knew each other's sins. They knew each other's strengths. They loved each other. They kissed each other. They hugged each other. And we know this because the Bible says it. And so, the New Testament church was a real family, and in fact, in one place, it calls it the household of God, the household of faith. And you'll see the Apostle Paul uh, with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. Uh, you'll see him falling, them falling on his shoulders and kissing him. You'll see tears everywhere. Paul writes about his tears all the time. And so when you go in a church, there should be a feeling that you're entering the living room of a family right? And when you go into the book of 1 Corinthians, there's a feeling that you're entering the living room of a family. And this is intimate, this talk, where he says, imitate me, And then, for this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways. Imitate me. Here comes my son. He will remind you of my ways. Now, isn't that a wonderful picture of fatherhood and sonship? That you, as a son, have your goal, as a son, to imitate your father. And you say, well, not my father... My father's a sinner. I say, what do you think Paul was? Paul was a sinner. And so it's a typical thing with children where you tell them, you know, take the trash out. And so what do they do? Well, they go grab the the trash can and walk to the back door and open the back door and they put it outside. And you go, are you an idiot? Are you an idiot? I said, take the trash out. Well, I did take the trash out. <laughs> In other words, kids often will literally obey you, make a big show of being obedient, and do exactly the opposite of what you intended them to do. And they know that full well. Don't ever let them snooker you. right? Now, that was an obvious example because I couldn't come up with a, a, a more real one off the top of my head, right? Okay. And so Paul's saying, imitate me. And Paul's a sinner. And so obviously he doesn't mean imitate my sin. Right? He wants them to imitate the places where he has it right. And we know that because he goes on and says... For this reason, imitate me, for this reason I've sent to you Timothy, who's my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways. And if it stopped there, we'd think, well, your sin and your righteousness. But he says, of my ways, which are in Christ. And so there we know that he's telling him to imitate the things about Paul that are in Christ. In other words, the things that are like Jesus. And so what we have is we have the Apostle Paul is a father to Timothy, a father in the faith. Fatherhood goes far beyond your biological father. Fatherhood is anybody who has had a profound influence. All the sports films you've ever watched are the story of a father. And typically, like Hoosiers, it's the story of a bad father and a good father, and the good father's the coach and the bad father's the the biological father, right? Right? But you have fatherhood. You have somebody that a young man looks up to and wants to be like, right? I want to be like Mike, right? And so here, Timothy is young. How young is Timothy? Well, Timothy as a pastor is so young that ten years later, from what I just read, the Apostle Paul writes him and says, don't let anybody despise your youth as you exercise authority in the church. Don't let anybody despise your youth. So Timothy is probably like... Your age. I'm going to guess he's like in his teens. I may be wrong. He might be in his early 20s. But how many of you would like to have somebody sent by an apostle into your church and then him telling you, obey him? Do you know how old he was, Josh? David? David? Anybody know? I'm going to guess it was probably, because if he says ten years later, don't let anybody despise your youth, whoa. Yeah, and back then, people didn't live that long, you know. And so here we have this beautiful picture of the intimacy of the church, where Paul can write the people in this church, and he can call them his children. He can refer to himself as their father. And then he looks at Timothy and he says, My beloved son in the faith, I'm going to send him to you to remind you what I'm like. You imitate him, and as you imitate him, you'll imitate me, because Timothy's my son and he imitates me. Intimacy. You don't have somebody standing in the pulpit, all words, and no life. How do you imitate a man if all he does is dispense truth in a sterile environment to the people sitting in the pews? You can't do it. Those people in Corinth, and and Timothy, knew him intimately. Why? Because they were at his dinner table. Where did they learn to imitate him? Not while he was giving a monologue. They lived together. That's how you learn to imitate somebody. You live together. Okay? And Timothy had lived with Paul. Paul had lived with the Corinthians. And this is a very intimate thing. Paul says, imitate me. Now I'm going to send you Timothy. I love Timothy. He loves me. I'm his father. He's my son. He'll remind you what I'm like. Now, imitate me. Timothy's going to remind you how to imitate me. And this is the church. And then he says... He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, I want to make a point about this. Do we have any other picture in the New Testament, in Scripture, of somebody imitating somebody else? A father being imitated by his son. As I've gotten older, and my father has been gone probably almost 30 years now. I've gotten more and more sensitive to fathers and sons, and specifically in the book of John. It's neat that we're going to begin to read through the book of John. Uh, because John is just filled with the intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And I want to read to you a couple of statements that Jesus makes in the, book, in the Gospel of John about his relationship with his father. He says, for instance, in John 10, beginning with verse 37, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now think about this. Where in America today do we do the works of our Father and imitate our Father? Where do we, where do, we do that? Well, the truth is almost nowhere anymore one of the tragedies of the post-agrarian world that we live in is that you don't have family farms. I had the privilege of being a pastor in a dairy community for a number of years, and it was such a delight to me to see the natural working together of families on a farm. They get up early in the morning, no child sleeps in, none. You don't even think about it. Every child gets up in the morning, and they go down, and they begin to feed the cows, they milk them, they, they, they do everything that's required, and the mother comes out, and typically she'll get some of the milk out of the bulk tank, but don't you do that. That's a joke. I've been thinking a lot about diet lately. Uh, She'll get some milk out of the bolt tank, she'll take it into the kitchen, and she'll cook breakfast, and when they get done hard work early in the morning, they will come in and eat a big breakfast, all right? And then, depending on the season, there is a division of labor on a family farm, and nobody patronizes a mother of farm kids a wife of a farmer. Nobody ever patronizes her, the little woman. You wouldn't think of saying that about a farm wife. Because, typically, she's the one that handles the books. She's the one that keeps track of the money. All right, And so people aren't patronizing her. She also often helps out in the milking. Um, Often she helps out, especially in, in, in seed time and harvest, with field work, driving the biggest tractors, Um, but there's a very clear division of labor when it comes to the grass. When it comes to the grass, the farm wife cuts the grass. She rides the little tractor. And I've known a number of farm wives who get very upset if their husband ever gets on the tractor that cuts the grass. That's her job. She gets to do that. All right. And so think of how kids grew up in an environment like that. They grow up, Working next to their mother and their father. And they're able to imitate the work ethic of their father for good or ill. They see how hard he works. They know intimately how hard he works because they're next to him hour after hour after hour after hour every single day. And the the daughters see their mother working hard in the barn, then coming in and cooking, handling the books, going out and driving the combine. Where does that happen today? You know, Adam's a doctor, right? So Adam takes his son along with him when he goes out and, and, and practices medicine. It's a joke. <laughs> and, it, you know, the professors, Eric actually, Rasmussen, does actually take his children into the lecture hall with him. And I am so, so thankful for that. And I think one of the things that's imperative about us as Christians is that the hearts of the fathers are turned again to their sons, their children. He takes his daughters with him, and the hearts of the children are turned to their fathers. It should be characteristic of the church. So when I used to go to Presbytery meetings, what would I do? I'd always take my kids along. I'd be at General Assembly, and down in the lobby of the convention center would be uh, typically Joseph and Michael running up the down elevator, and then down the up one. (laughs) And they'd just have fun. They'd run around, come in, go out, have a gas. Now, think of how our culture breaks down the family so that there is not time spent between fathers and their children. We live in a fatherless culture. We don't know our father's. We don't work with our fathers. The only thing we can imitate about our fathers is the ability to sit and watch a football game. And that's really probably the most positive example of imitating our fathers that we have in our culture. You know, when, 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 during the football season, you know? That's when we share quality time. Now, go back to the early church. You've got Paul... And he's imitating Jesus. You've got Timothy. He's imitating Paul. You have the church. They're imitating Paul insofar as he imitates Jesus. And the church, he calls his children and speaks in terms of endearment with them. And Timothy, who calls their attention to him, Timothy is his son. He speaks with terms of endearment, talks about his tears and his joy with his son. This is the New Testament fatherhood everywhere and so Jesus says this Jesus says if I don't do the works of my father don't believe me and we're like so fatherless that we hear that and we go what's that about (laughs) you know if I don't do the works of my father don't believe me what who does the works of his father anymore And then he says in John 5.17, he answered them, and he said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, listen, do you understand that? (laughs) Have you had a good father? If you've had a good father, you understand that. My dad's still working. I ain't going in the house until he's gone in the house. My father's still working, says Jesus, and so am I. Yesterday, uh, Thaddeus is visiting from over in Canton, and Thaddeus was in my office, and he's thinking about coming to the pastor's college, so we were talking to him, and I said, well, how are you going to provide for yourself and your family? And he said, well, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> and I thought, well, either he's cocky or he's good. And so I wanted to find out, so I said, how could you say you're not worried about that? And he said, well, he said, I grew up with a dad who made me work. And he said, when I was 12, I lost my summers for good. Because every summertime, I would be out from morning until night with my father working. My friends would talk about sleeping in until 1. Never happened with me. And so guess what? Thaddeus had a father who understood that he was to have his son imitate him. (laughs) And so guess what? Thaddeus isn't worried. So then I knew he's not cocky. He's good. He's had a father. And so Thaddeus, now in his life, is imitating his father. He has a work ethic and he knows that there's always a place for men that know how to work. Jesus said what? Jesus said this. Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Isn't that beautiful? When you read that, do you see the love that Jesus as a son has for his father? Now, some of you are going to say, nope, doesn't compute, never had it. I say, look, forget your dad, forget your son, look at this. This is reality, your life is perversion. If you haven't had a father's touch out to of work, and if you don't understand the concept of my dad's still working, so I'm not going to go in the house, I'm going to stay here and work with him until he goes in the house. If you haven't had that, look at Jesus. Look at him with his father. Have fatherhood and sonship restored to you. Have it restored to you. You need to go through your life in bondage to the perversion you grew up under. Have faith and look at Jesus. Have faith and look at his father. You're a father now and you have no grid to know how to be a father to a son because your dad wasn't a father to you. Forget your perversion. Just forget it. It's so boring. Look at Jesus. It's so exciting. Jesus says, my dad's still working and so I am too. And then seduce your son to want more than anything else in his life to work next to you. Now, what was that yesterday, David? Who was it? Oh, I know who it was. Um, Where's Lawrence and Janet? There's Janet. You know who it is? It's your, it's your son-in-law. So Janet has a son-in-law who's an electrician. And he, their mother, and he's got all these little boys, and they're, they're all a spitting image of him. And this guy makes type A look asleep. Okay? <laughs> Trust me. And so their mother is homeschooling, and she's trying to motivate them in a competition for reading. And so what is the prize? Well, the prize is that whoever wins the contest among the sons will what? Will get to spend a full day with their father. Oh, man. That's drop-dead gorgeous. And guess what? Do you think the sons are competing? You bet they're competing. And do you think the mother's keeping score? You bet she's keeping score. Not no-cutter's soccer here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Jesus says what? Jesus says my father is working and so am I I remember growing up always wanting to work with my father that's all I ever wanted to do I wanted to be like daddy right finally I was about I think 21 and I was living out in Boulder and my dad was head of the Christian Medical Society and he had a camp at Deer valley ranch down outside of uh uh the springs colorado springs and he and my mother were going to go and speak and he called me up and he said to me tim i'd like you and mary lee to come down and i'd like you to work at the camp that week taking care of the high school kids i was working up at first present boulder and i'm telling you i died and went to heaven when my father asked me that i did I died and went to heaven that my father would ask me. Do you know what my dad used to do? Every time he'd write a column or every time he'd give a talk, do you know what he did? He would read it to me over the phone before he did it and ask me what I thought he should change. You imagine that. Did he need me? He didn't need me? Maybe he did. So anyhow, I told Mary Lee, and I was so excited. And then my dad had a heart attack down in Mexico. And he had to cancel the camp. It really was one of the tragedies of my life. Never got to do it. Jesus said what? Jesus said, remember? Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. In John 8, he says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. And is that good? No, that's not good. Because he's talking to the religious leaders and he's telling them that they belong to Satan. And so this is the kind of image, the, this is the intimacy, this is the organic, the, the real life of the New Testament. It's fathers and sons. And you say, well, what about me? I'm a woman. And I say, it's one of the perversions of our day that women don't understand that women are dealt with as men are dealt with. And so, of course, it's true for mothers and their daughters The thing is, typically it's easier for a daughter to grow up and to mimic her mother than it is a son or father because the father typically works outside the home. And the mother typically, in this church, still works in the home or at least is there when her kids come home from school. And so it's a little bit easier for daughters to learn what they need to learn. Plus all their teachers are women anyhow. And so the Apostle Paul says, imitate me. I'm sending a Timothy. He's going to help you with this. He will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, not the sin, but the things that I do right, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, isn't that interesting? Just as I teach everywhere in every church. Okay, I'm going to read something. I wrote it. <laughs> Oh, for the days when everywhere in every church what is written in the letters of the Apostle Paul is what other preachers and other pastors and other elders remind the people of and call them to obey. Oh, for the days when everywhere in every church people call people to imitate the Apostle Paul. Oh, for the days when right belief and right living right practice and right doctrine prevailed and we knew what they were because we listened to the apostle paul but today we've gotten more sophisticated than that and we must defend the apostle paul defend the apostle paul defend him defend him defend the apostle paul Defend him? What world do I live in? The Apostle Paul was such a man that God inspired most of the New Testament through him. And you want me to defend the Apostle Paul? Today, we've gotten more sophisticated than that. We must defend the Apostle Paul. He was repressed. He was a male chauvinist. He was in bondage to his ancient patriarchal culture. He was stupid. He was weak. He was on a trajectory away from himself and away from his letters and away from his commands and away from God's order of creation and our job is to plot that trajectory across history and establish where he expected, really in his deeper self, where he wanted to end up today. With respect to the grand work he was engaged in of remaking the church and her people in the image of the French Revolution. And Lucas says, Come on. Where is he? He's not here. Is he here? Come on, Lucas, say it. All right, Ron, you say it. Let's hear it. Oh, you can't. Nobody can hear you. Come on. Come on, yell it. So do you all know what he's saying? They were the three cries of the French Revolution. Liberty. Liberty equality, and fraternity. And so if we look at where the Apostle Paul hoped to be in a few millennia, he hoped to be at the place where the French Revolution took its stand. Liberty, fraternity, equality, and always equality. Do you understand this? And so that's why we have to defend the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle Paul is has to be conformed to the Procrustian bed of the French Revolution. And what happens? What happens when the Apostle Paul must be conformed to our sin, rather than our sin being repented of as we imitate the Apostle Paul? We in the church today have flipped it right on its head. Instead of imitating the Apostle Paul, we require the Apostle Paul to imitate us! Ah! it's incredible and we have scholars published in every theological society every publisher coming up with new ways of forcing the apostle paul onto our precustrian bed onto a bed that doesn't conform to anything he is it doesn't think the way he li- doesn't live the way he loves certainly doesn't love the way he loves And then we think that we've arrived at a place where we're honoring God. And so first we made slaves equal because the Apostle Paul would have told the slaves to rebel if he'd been able to. And next we made women equal because the Apostle Paul would have told women to rebel. Bell if he'd been able to. And what do you think comes next? You know Dogon well what comes next. What comes next is your children. That's the next rebellion. You can't draw a line in the sand and say this much rebellion and no more. Right? There's absolutely no way that Christians, let alone unbelievers, are going to be able to discipline their children. Because it takes a village. All the authority of this country is being transferred to Washington, D.C. and to government. Do you understand this? And so the Apostle Paul, if he'd known what he was going doing, he would have told the slaves to have an armed insurrection and not to live content in the state in which they were. And he would have told the women to have an armed insurrection. You know, anybody read a doll's house? The Apostle Paul had known what he was doing. The, church would be filled with Norahs that left their husband and children so they could go off and discover themselves. And pretty soon guess what our children are going to do? Our children are going to kick us and punch us and curse us. And we're going to say, where did that come from? You guys... I'm not bright, I'm not smart, and I'm not obedient, and I'm not righteous. Do you understand this? This is not about me. It's about the Apostle Paul. And you say, well, he's just a man. I say, no, he isn't. He's an apostle. You notice I always, 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 always say the Apostle Paul. Have you ever noticed that? when I write, look at the blog, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, why do I say that? Because I want to remind all of you rebels that all through his letters, he claims his office, he claims his authority, and every single person to whom he delegates that authority, he demands that they call people to submit to them. Why? Because the Apostle Paul's authority is not his own, it's God's You may not abdicate the authority that God has given you. If you're a mother, it is imperative that your children obey you. If you're a father, it's imperative that your children obey you. Now you know that I'm not going to stop there, right? It is imperative that your wife obey you. And you go, oh man, this dude... And I go, come on, guys. Come on. The Apostle Paul said it. And God's Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write this. Imitate me. And then what did he say? He said, I'm going to send you Timothy so you'll learn how to imitate me. And then he said what? He said, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. She must be silent. For Adam was created first and then Eve. Imitate me. And we say... The Apostle Paul was repressed. The Apostle Paul was a misogynist. I believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the Apostle Paul. Listen, I'm sorry you're a woman. But you are. Now, the truth is, I'm not actually sorry you're a woman. The truth is, that I think the whole world is sorry you're a woman, and I'm the only one who isn't. (laughs) Because it's only what? It's only when you begin to conform yourself to the plan that God had when he made you that you have freedom. You know what Martin Luther King Jr. said? The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Remember he said, free almighty, free almighty. thank Free at last, free at last. Thank God almighty I'm free at last. Freedom doesn't come from political ideology. It doesn't come from the United States passing the Civil Rights Act. There are pockets of freedom that come from that. But true freedom only comes from one thing, and that is Submission. To God the creator. That's it. The only adventure in life. Is the man. Who conforms himself. To the law. And the character. Of God. And he has the only adventuresome life. The only courage that's needed. Is the courage of Christians. The only excitement. Is not. People that do drugs. You seen the excitement of a a guy that smoked a joint, right? Oh wow, man. It's deep, dude. It's deep. Wow, man. Wow. And what does everybody call him? They call him a stoner. And what does a stoner mean? That the guy's exceptionally perceptive? And how about crack? And how about crystal meth? How about Oxycontin? Somebody that's addicted to Oxycontin, all they do is they spend their life trying to figure out how to get the next drug, how to steal, how to commit forgery, how to rob. They want to know what people are dying of cancer so that they can go in their house and get their Oxycontin. And I know this because when my brother was dying of cancer, my sister-in-law down in Bristol, Tennessee, told me not to tell anybody that they had Oxycontin in the house because people would break in if they knew it. You think that's a life? How many of you remember cleaning out the crystal meth house of the woman from our church? Look around. See these hands? Was that a life? It was absolutely horrible. It was horrible on every level. And there was no life in that home. There was only death and conformity. That's what drugs are. They're death, they're conformity. That's what goth is. Death, conformity. Okay? And then this year we got a Christmas card from the mother and her son that lived in that home. And guess what? the Christmas card was filled with life and joy and beauty and happiness. Funny thing. A life without drugs is actually kind of exciting. (laughs) Duh. I mean, you guys, listen. Satan is the ultimate oppressor and robber of everything that's good. He hates life. He hates joy. He hates peace. He hates anything that's good. I was talking to an older uh, Presbyterian pastor this week, Dan Reuter, Drew. And Dan was saying that he had a friend out in New York when Timothy Leary was at Harvard. And his friend was a liberal, but he said he was smart. And his friend observed that Timothy Leary was actually teaching everybody how to drug themselves into psychosis. (laughs) And you think of this. So like a whole generation got seduced by Timothy Leary to like use hallucinogenics. And what do hallucinogenics do? What they do is they drive you inside and inside and inside. And what does life in Christ do? Life in Christ is so exciting, so adventurous, and so beautiful, that the most pig-headed, selfish man on the face of the earth, for one second in his life, will forget himself. (laughs) He forgets himself. And the Greek for forgetting yourself is ecstasis. To ex, out of, stand, stasis, ecstasis. Ecstasy. Ecstasy is when you're able finally by the power of the Holy Spirit and the vision of God and the ministry of Jesus Christ to stand outside of yourself. And what do drugs do? They drive you in and in and in and in and in. What does pride do? Drives you in and in and in. What does narcissism do? In and in and in and in and in. What does... What does sexual immorality do? Give you intimacy? Do you have intimacy when you're sexually immoral? No, you have no intimacy whatsoever. It's flesh for your own self-gratification. And the Apostle Paul says, imitate me. And then he says, He, Timothy, will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, here's a weird thing, right? I've been going on about freedom, right? And bondage. I'm showing you that drugs are bondage. I'm showing you that they're boring, right? But people that use drugs think that they're individualists. People that use drugs, people that wear goth, that that cop a goth posture, are convinced that they are individualists, right? But did you read what it said at the end of this text, at the end of this verse? What it says at the end is, just as I teach everywhere in every church. And what I want you to understand is, the whole point of this text is to make you a conformist and to take away your bondage. (laughs) To make you a conformist so that you will not have to conform anymore. Do you understand this? As you conform yourself to Timothy who in turn is conformed to Paul who in turn is conformed to Jesus Christ you will for the first time in your life have liberty and it won't be a posture you cop It's not going to be the car you drive. It's not going to be the music you listen to, the films you have up on Facebook. It's not going to be how you do your hair. It's not going to be how you play your game. It's not going to be any of those things that the world teaches you give you individuality. The only way you'll ever have individuality is if you are absolutely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The only way you'll ever be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is if you're absolutely conformed to the boring but unbelievably exciting doctrine that the church has always taught everywhere all across time. In other words... Conformity to Jesus Christ, to his monolithic authority, monolithic doctrine, monolithic church. Conformity there is the only freedom any man has ever had. And if you will bring yourself to submit to Jesus Christ, and you say, well, I am submitted to Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean I don't, that doesn't mean I submit to Paul. I say, "Uh uh-uh, 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 nope, nope, nope. If you don't submit to the Apostle Paul and imitate him, you are in defiance of Jesus Christ. Okay? You remember how John, the Apostle of Love, says, any man that says he loves God but hates his brother, he's a liar, because how can you love God who you haven't seen while hating your brother who you have? Any man who says he belongs to Jesus Christ and submits to Jesus Christ while defying the Apostle Paul, defying Timothy, defying all the elders and all the doctrine of the church across 2,000 years is a liar. Because you can see me, and the Bible says obey and submit to those over you in the Lord. Submit to their authority. And you say, no, 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 I submit only to Jesus Christ. I say, listen, you're just a conformist, but you're a conformist to Satan. Satan seduced you. Satan's gotten you to submit to everything he tells you to do, which is sin and a lie. He speaks nothing other than lies. And he has you thinking that because you won't submit to me as a pastor, that you have freedom. But you have no freedom at all. Because I can absolutely predict every single word that comes out of your mouth. Why? Because I read the New Yorker and the New York Times. That's why. And all you are is a walking, breathing, political correctness machine. And that's the freedom of the world. The freedom to be so worried about ever offending anybody that everybody, somehow, despite all the variety of snowflakes, every individual in the world has the same opinion, God's made snowflakes, and we celebrate the diversity. But when it comes to the human brain, no diversity there. Don't think about Jews. Don't think about blacks. Don't think about homosexuals. Don't think about women. Don't think about men. Don't you dare think about anything. Because if you do, you're going to offend someone, and you won't get your doctorate. Listen, Satan is boring. Satan is boring. He is boring. The only real excitement is in orthodoxy, in orthopraxy. And that's what Chesterton says. And you should read him, even though he hates Calvinism. Listen, you know how it said that the only real adventurer is the father. (laughs) And those of you that are dads understand this? The weight that descended on you when you had your first child with your wife, right? Listen, the only real adventurer is the Christian. And the minute you sign on, Jesus says, okay, take up your cross. And the entire church in America is a scheme to deny that Jesus said that and meant it. If you become a Christian, it's your privilege to get on a ship that never sees another ship but that it engages it. Jesus Christ sends a shot across the bow of every other ship in the sea. (laughs) You know, Hornblower. Any of you read Horatio Hornblower? You know, always out there looking for a fight. Why? For his own glory. But when you're a Christian, everywhere you go, people will attack you and everything out of your mouth they will perceive to be a shot across their bow <laughs> because it's so clear you're an other you know you're not politically correct you're not walking around worried that people might be offended you love jesus and it oozes out of your pores and that's why everywhere the apostle paul went he was hated he was whipped he was beaten and don't worry you won't have to be that way unless you're a man unless you're a leader And so what we see here is that the world, claiming it's giving you freedom and individuality, will get you on drugs, it'll have you listening to the same music everybody else does, watching the same sports contests everybody else watches. The world only has conformity. That's all it has. That's it. And there's no freedom in it. But if you follow Jesus Christ, you'll have freedom. And you know what else? You will become the most weird individual you've ever met on the face of the earth because only in Christ are we free to express the diversity of gifts that God put in every single one of us only in Christ are we able to be the snowflakes God made us to be now if you're not laughing right now there's something wrong with you if you know me I mean whoever thought I would give a sermon on be a snowflake for Jesus Listen, I want to say to all of you, when the Apostle Paul tells us to conform ourselves to him as he conforms himself to Christ, and to conform ourselves to Timothy as he conforms himself to Paul, as he conforms himself to Christ. And when he says, what? He says, just as I teach everywhere in every church, I want you to understand that obedience and submission and conformity are exactly what you want when it comes to to your life. In fact, I'm going to make the case that your whole life will be conformity. And it will either be the conformity to Satan and his lies that will repress and oppress you and your children and your wife until you go into the grave and then the soil will conform you. Or... (laughs) When you conform yourself to Jesus Christ, then unbelievable excitement, adventuresomeness, uh, fights, sweetness, love, tears. And then when you die, you won't be cast into the bottomless pit, but you will go into a place where. If you were to take all the talk and all the thinking about diversity in all the universities of the world for the last 50 years, it won't even hold a candle to the diversity there is in heaven. Hell will be a place of infinite conformity and sadness and gnashing of teeth. And even the flames and the worms will conform your body to their designs. Heaven, there will be no end to the fertility and the work that's necessary and the variety of music that gives glory to God. Daryl Hart's going to find out about that. And so, people, you have your choice. And the choice is, (laughs) okay, okay, all right. You got to serve somebody. It may be the devil and it may be the Lord. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. It's Bob Dylan. <laughs> it's a great song. So who's it gonna be? I'm gonna end by talking about Rita Cuffey, lady that died at eighty four here in this church. Probably Mary Lee's my closest friend, until she died. She went to Boston Latin School, and then she was at Radcliffe, and then she was at Harvard uh, getting a, a doctorate in astronomy when she met another astronomer and decided to throw away her fellowship and get married. Brilliant. And there was not a weirder bird on the face of the earth. You walked in her front door and you saw... Chocogoblin, or whatever those cereal thing, you know, Chocoholic, or I don't know. What are they called? Count Chocula. Count Chocula, yeah. And then you had like Rice Krispies. And, of course, the whole downstairs was filled with learning, books, every manner of thing you could imagine. But there, on this bookshelf that greeted you when you walked in, a bookshelf in the middle of a room, by the way, and an ugly one at that, coming out of the top of the bookshelf were these four cereal boxes. And it was disconcerting because what Jimmy, her husband, or Rita, I don't know who did it, what they'd done is they'd taken a little dowel and put it through the corners of all the boxes. So that when you walked in, these boxes were hovering over you with no indication of suspension by anything. And you would always just be on edge when you walked in her front door just, because you knew the boxes were there, and what's holding them up anyhow? And you knew in your mind that there must be a dowel through the thing, and that's what's holding. But I mean, if this is the bookshelf, they were like over here, (laughs) over space. That was Rita Cuffey. And Rita Cuffey, I think, was the most godly person I've ever known. And you know something? She was the weirdest person I've ever known. And I'm telling you, when you become holy, you will become more unusual. Because you have been made by God unbelievably different than anybody else on the face of the earth. And as you stop being oppressed by Satan and your mother, (laughs) that's a bit of a joke, as you stop being conformed, to political correctness, all of a sudden your insight into your discipline will explode. Your creativity will explode. Your freedom will explode and you'll get to be like Rita Cuffey, okay? You didn't know Rita Cuffey, but what a wonderful woman, what a wonderful woman. How many of you, anybody been in Boston? How many of you know where the, the, the Boston, what is it, the wheel? The Boston stone. How many of you know where the Boston stone is? <laughs> how many of you know that all the distances in Boston were measured from that stone? And that's how they said how far something was from Boston. You've been there. Did you, did you see that stone when you were there? Did you see the stone? All right, that's it. Okay, MIT didn't teach you that, did it? Nope. Rita knew where the Boston stone was. Do you know that when we were there visiting and Rita was with us, do you know that even the people in the bar that the stone was in the wall, if I remember correctly, didn't know that Boston stone was in their wall? (laughs) Everything about Rita was fertile. Everywhere she went, life happened. And when Rita prayed, God heard her. When Rita first became a Christian, she read in the Bible that it said, when you pray, go in your closet. So from that day on, she went in her closet and shut the door. Such an ignorant woman. So literalistic. So conformist. I don't really mean those things, but that's how we would approach somebody like that. Let's pray.